Okay, here's a passage from the book of Joel in the Hebrew Bible. Afterward, I will pour out my spirit. Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. God, I love this passage. I love the prophets. I love the mixture of poetry and song and mystery and critique and challenge and vision that is the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. And actually, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the prophetic archetype. And I want to talk about it in light of what the hell is happening in our world and in politics. Politics, it almost seems to me, has become a substitute or the new religion of America. Maybe we could even say the new religion of the world. As the great world religions have waned in terms of their, the, I guess maybe the right word is emotional attachment. It's like, okay, well, um, then what am I attached to? And it's almost as if politics is saying, here's something, here's an ideology, here's a doctrine, here are um, statements of faith. And here's a litmus test as to whether or not you're really one of us. See, that's uh, the old game of institutional religion. And that's what politics is sounding like. Why do you think people are so incredibly mean to someone on the opposite um, side of an issue um, or the other aisle, as they say, here in America? Um, and and not only is it is it looking more religious, it's looking... Um, like low-level religion, because I'm not anti-religious. In fact, I used to say, you know, I used to kind of say I'm spiritual but not religious, but actually I think I'm actually religious and not all that spiritual. <laughs> so, um, and what I mean by religion is is a life oriented toward meaning. That's That's the religious path, something like that, at least in my view. So, um... I'm not anti-religious, but low-level religion, like tribal religion, is the level of our uh, politics right now. And everybody knows this. God, everybody knows this. And, and yet we find ourselves caught up in the same game. And that's what I want to talk about today, the prophetic consciousness, the prophetic imagination. And, and maybe even, oh man, what I love about this this obscure passage in Joel is that it's pretty soon, he's saying pretty soon, there will come a day when uh, your sons and daughters will prophesy. I just thought about uh, Bob Dylan. Your sons and daughters are beyond your command. Yeah. And your old men will dream dreams. Man, that's what we need. We need old men with dreams and young men with visions and and old women with dreams and, and young women with visions. Um, yep, that's what we need. And the spirit, the wind, the mystery will flow and move and have its way of being in everyone, in all people, in all ethnicities, in all religions and, race, and races and, and, and um, you know, identity forms, which are impermanent. To identify as is a state of impermanence. And, yeah, the spirit, the 
the movement, the vitality of life and of meaning itself, may that, may that be poured graciously out on all people. Yeah, that's, that's quite a vision. Um, that's a longing, that's a desire, I think, that we all carry. That Joel here is um, giving voice to. That, that passage, by the way, is echoed again in the New Testament. In the, in the beginning of the church, um, they didn't call themselves the church, but these followers of Jesus that were beginning to experience something of this, uh, of Christ consciousness, of the risen Christ, of the resurrection, of the mystery of Christ. By the way, you should check out my audiobook, which is um, you can find on my website, because I just did a whole thing on, on what I called a grain of wheat. Um, which is, which is hopefully um, a fresh way of, of looking at the life of Jesus from a symbolic point of view. In any case, a bit of an advertisement. By the way, I didn't even say, welcome to my podcast, Hints and Guesses. I'm Kent Dobson, your host, um, and I got a lot of things <laughs> moving around, <laughs> so I sort of forgot the intro. Um, okay, so uh, back to prophetic consciousness. And, and I'm making this podcast today just... Uh, about a week after the presidential debates and only a few days after the president of the United States um, being diagnosed with uh, COVID-19. So just when you thought this year couldn't get any weirder, it does. <laughs> and, and not to mention the many other crises and moments of confusion and misinformation and the flood of advertisements and um, conspiracy theories. And yep, I'm making, I want to talk about prophetic consciousness in that light. So um, the other thing I, I might want to add is that I've seen among religious people and both on the right and the left, some, um, uh, what's the right way of putting it? They're, they're, involved in the political conversation in a certain kind of way right now. And America, I don't know, you'd have to tell me if it's like this in, in Europe or Australia or New Zealand or wherever else um, people are listening from, because I have listeners from all over, but um, in America it's become almost normal now, normalized, to, to talk about um, political parties as reflecting particularly, the Christian values. And for a while, the right was saying something like, no, 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 we, we embody real Christian values, um, such as the right to life and, and a few other things. Um, and we're like the party of Christ, really. Um, even though like people don't often talk that directly, that's sort of what they mean. And the Democrats, in their own way, have said, no, 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 we're the real, we're the real conscience of the, of politics in America. We, if, if Jesus were to, to pick a party, he'd be a Democrat, because we care about poor people. And, and now I'm, I'm speaking, you know, hyperbolically a bit, a bit extremes here. But I also think what I'm saying, there's some, there's some truth to. And Right now, there's like a resurgence of this, um, almost like who would Jesus vote for? And like a real Christian couldn't possibly vote for Donald Trump, or a real Christian couldn't possibly vote for Joe Biden. Um, and do you see how dangerous that is to begin to play that game? Because uh, here's the truth. Here's what's going to happen. In a few weeks, 
And right now, at, in, at kitchen tables across America, people are already voting, and in a few weeks, we will cast our ballots. And, um, and who's going to enter the voting booth? Well, people with values and ideas and stories and backgrounds and hopes and heartaches, um, various levels of education or no education, people who are religious and not religious, um, will just enter the voting booth like anybody else and, and engage in our civic responsibility in that moment of, of, of solitude. And by the way, I should give a shout out to people who don't vote, which now, right now it's like, how dare you? You should, you know, basically you should burn in hell if you, if you can't vote or you don't want to vote or these candidates don't, don't, couldn't possibly reflect your value system at all. So you've, you know, maybe you, how dare you, you know, um, that <laughs> I'm being facetious. So yeah, we have an opportunity to engage in civic responsibility and, and I hope with consciousness, um, whether we vote, whether we don't and to whom we vote for. But my point is we're going to enter the voting booth and we're going to, and, and all of us enter with a whole series of contradictions and complexities with plenty of shadow and plenty of light. And there we are in the solitude of the voting booth. And there are no more family pressures. Mom, dad are not there. Um, your pastor isn't looking over your shoulder, you know, saying, well, you know, God's watching. Um, you know, no more pundits. Uh, no more posturing on the internet. No more Facebook posts. No more hashtags. You're just there alone. And you have a, a moment to say, to check in, to say, well, what's my conscience tell you? Tell me. Um, maybe a moment to check in with your values. You know, my my wife was asked me a question the other day. She's like, "Do you think it's possible to separate personalities from um, policies?" And I was like, mm, "That's an interesting question," um, because I don't know. If, I'll just be honest. I don't really care for either personality that's running for president. Um, and as soon as you say that, you're like, well, should that even really, really be the point? Well, maybe not. You know, Obama, I kind of liked. I was like, hey, yeah, he's a guy. I mean, I could like go out for a beer and maybe we could like play some basketball, you know, play some horse. I'm sure he would destroy me. You know, um, a personality that I kind of liked. And I, and, and I read Obama's memoir before he became president. I thought, hmm, he's also a very good writer. But that's a personality. Yeah, but what are the policies? Because we elect people to... Um, be in the great conversation uh, around policies and laws and and yeah so is it possible to separate personality because everything is so personality driven you know and even even just to put it like that it's like you know if I start going down the list of I'll just take Obama and Trump and and what were the policies what was the posture toward the policies what were the what what were the actual laws how were things changed i mean it's never like oh you know so and so did a great job and the other guy was just crap you know it's like oh actually you know i all right here here are things that that affect my life and my city and my neighborhood and my state and the overall country and we forget that in the midst of mudslinging you know we think this person, and I'm saying, you know, obviously someone's disposition can can wildly affect how an administration is run and, and, and the kind of the public tone of, of leadership and of power in the country and in the world. So I'm, I'm not dismissing that, but um, I'm just a reminder, you know, like it's not all that's there. And, 
And after all, politicians, especially presidents, are here one day and tomorrow thrown into the fire, to quote Jesus. You know, four years, that's it. Um, and then, you know, maybe eight years. And, and here we are. So it's almost as if I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that, that people like us have a lot more power than we even realize. And we're in it for the long haul. <laughs> And we're in the conversation for the long haul. So anyway, what's my main point? That people are going to go into the voting booth and good people that you know are going to vote for Donald Trump. Good people. Good people you like. Good people that you would even trust with your own children. Like you're going to go on a date and you're going to drop them off at, at, at their house. Yep, that's, that's what's going to happen. And good people are going to go in and vote for Joe Biden. It's true. And what kind of people? People that you would, might even want to hang out with on a pontoon boat and you know fish for bluegill. Yep. Um, and good people, some good people aren't even going to vote. <laughs> and it's not about being good. It's, I'm just using that in, in the loosest possible sense of the word, that just ordinary humans, you know. And, and the day after the election, what is going to change? Well, maybe nothing when it comes to the administration. Um, maybe big changes will come in January. But is your neighbor going to change or the person that you share a cubicle with or I guess people don't share cubicles anymore? Um, whatever, you know what I'm saying. Uh, your neighbor, your colleague, um, the teacher that teaches your kid, um, your physical neighbor, not even as a metaphor, they're not going anywhere. And the people you interact with um, that make up a huge thing of the thing we all call life, ordinary everyday interactions. They will not have gone anywhere. We still have to live in that America. And maybe I want to say a couple more things along this line, along these lines. And I've said this before in my podcast, but I don't know if I've said it kind of with um, as much directness. One of the things we know right now from brain science, from the study of the psyche and from uh, uh, whatever, I don't want to go into tremendous detail is that um, people, by and large, seem to have uh, dispositions that they're born with that equate to political leanings. Not necessarily parties, but um, postures, ways of being in the world. And it has very much to do with how they respond to stimuli, especially um, intense um, uh, stimuli. Stimuli uh, like fear, um, things like that. And to, to be short, <laughs> I really don't like, I, the reason why I'm stuttering a bit is because I don't like this metaphor, but I want to say it's a metaphor. People are wired, that's the thing I don't like, the wiring metaphor, um, to have a, a more conservative disposition or a more liberal disposition. And that, as far as we know, is a fact. <laughs> as best as science can say. Now, science is in the business of, of making hypotheses <laughs> and, and continually refining. So as much as anything is a fact, um, this seems to be a fact that people have dispositions and they seem to be split about 50-50. So holy shit. All right. So we have an America that seems to be there's red states and blue states, which is not really the case down on the local level, but you have red people and blue people. Well, yeah, that's kind of describes what it's like. It's not all that insane of a system that, yeah, people um, 
the way they respond to the world instinctually can skew a little more toward conserving and preservation or more toward openness. Now, some of this can be explained the big five personality test. So take it. Definitely you should. Um, people aren't using Myers-Briggs so much anymore, um, although some people are. Um, but the big five personality test is definitely worth taking. So for example, just to put my cards on the table, I'm really, really, really high in openness. And you'd have to see exactly what that means. You can just Google it because um, the big five defines openness in a certain way. And I'm very low in conscientiousness, <laughs> which I, for some reason really makes me laugh every time I admit it. Um, and that combination, along with a few other things, means I'm probably going to be a little more liberal. And it turns out I am. Because it has much more to do with high and openness, but I'm not very conscientious. So things like order, um, laws, uh, rules, they don't, I think it's not that they, that I don't like them and I'm rebelling. I just think they don't really apply to me. You know, they, they, or they apply, but I mean, come on, they don't have to be taken. They're not real laws. Um, so I'm just low in conscientiousness. So now I didn't choose this. It's not because I read the Dalai Lama. It's not because I'm enlightened. It's not because I read Eckhart Tolle or had some mystical experience. It's just the way I see the world. And, and probably growth looks like for me growing a little more in conscientiousness as much to tell you the truth, a little more order could do me a world of good valuing a little law and order. Yes. I said the word law and order would actually be pretty good for me. So, um, yeah, that's just, but that's, that's just my personality. That's my, my disposition. And to, and to think that that is somehow more enlightened than someone that, that begins with a little more structure. That's very high in conscientiousness, but very low in openness. Which one is the right person? Well, that's just insane. That's stupid. That's a bad way of thinking about the complexity of being human. The truth is, I'd like to imagine a world, talk about an old man dreaming dreams, where those of different political persuasions can engage in civil conversation and compromise and try to create the best world possible. That's what I want. That's what I think is actually possible in America. That's what I think um, is the greatness of America, that, that somehow, almost by accident and will, maybe it's a combination, by accident and by genius and by will, we created a country where there's freedom of speech and freedom of religion um, and freedom of thought, and we're and we shouldn't be policing these things, which you know that's up for debate right now. Um, but and where various kinds of people, in their freedom of thought and religion and speech, can get together and try to cook up a way to live together and and do so nobly. Now, let me say something else about the left and the right. That is. That's, I think, essential. Those on the right, order, structure, hierarchy, always, 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 always need voices from the other side that say, if you don't change, you're going to be stuck, and the system is not only going to serve, stop serving you well, but all of us. And in fact, um, if it becomes too rigid, it it destroys and hurts the marginalized people on the edges of society. That's part of the goal of, quote, the liberal voice, um, though it's not always doing such a good job of that, I must admit. And the liberal voice where we need change, we need innovation, we need, to, we need to break out, we need to leave old ways behind absolutely needs the voice 
of moderation that says, hey, some things are worth preserving because otherwise we're going to end up with ashes and chaos. So these two dispositions need one another. Oftentimes you find them inside of a marriage <laughs> and inside of a friendship, um, inside of an organization, in, on a board, in a boardroom, you know. Um, nothing could be worse for a company than a bunch of people high in openness and low in conscientiousness taking charge. Bad idea. Good idea would be, hey, we need some of both. So I'm, I'm just trying to back off a little bit here and say, wait a minute, just let's slow down a little bit. Let's not, let's not automatically assume the other side has nothing to offer, you know, that kind of silence the, the silence what I don't like. It's like, la, 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 like in, you know, like in Dumb and Dumber when um, Jim Carrey is, you know, in the front seat with his, uh, his fingers in his ears saying, la, 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 refusing to listen. That's basically what both sides are, are doing right now to one another. And I'm saying we don't have to behave like that, meaning you and me, the listeners of this podcast, <laughs> ordinary people. I don't really expect that right now of politicians. They back themselves in this horrible corner where they've, they've told people, I'll never compromise, which is total BS, but they back themselves into this ideological camp and corner and they don't know how to get out of it, but we don't have to behave like that. So where do I want to go? I want to talk about, for a few minutes, prophetic consciousness. The kind of consciousness that, that can imagine um, a different future. The kind of consciousness that calls out the, the horrors of the present moment. And what, and what is this, and, and why might we need it sort of now more than ever? So that's um, where I'm going. First of all, I think it might be worth doing a little background work here because the prophet is a particularly powerful archetype. Archetype is a pattern that is born or emerges up out of, um, I was going to say Judaism, but that's not quite right, up out of the Hebrew Bible, out of the Israelite people, the Hebrews and becomes an important voice in the larger community that we could, even you could, you could even call the worldview or um, the spiritual posture of the Hebrew people. And how did that come to be? I mean, that's that that maybe is is worth just uh, touching upon for a few minutes. So, um, maybe. It's worth noting that um, in the Hebrew Bible, you had sort of three rings of influence. You had the kings, you had the priests, and you had the prophets. Eventually, you had the prophets. So the kings, the priests, and the prophets. And there were other um, figures early on in Judaism before... Uh, I keep saying Judaism, and that's not exactly right. Um, the Hebrew religion... Before there were kings, there were judges. So these were something like local military slash elder-like people, men and women, by the way, um, who kind of governed in, this, in a sort of city-state kind of mode. Um, and then I suppose everyone else 
fell into pretty traditional categories like laborers and farmers and shepherds and things like that. But in terms of the, the rings of power, you had the king, and that usually means the king and his army. The kings, you had the priests, they control the um, religious establishment and politics and religion are very mixed in the ancient world. But um, there's a distinction. Only priests are allowed to perform the sacrificial duties. Um, and then you have the emergence eventually of the prophet. And the prophet, interestingly enough, stands outside of these two circles of power. They're not priests, or if they are, they're not operating as one. Um, and they're not in the inner circle of kings. They don't work for the king. The king doesn't employ them. They don't work as priests. The priests, In other words, that's what gives them us a ground to stand on. They're outside of the system. And I want to say that sort of loud and clear when it comes to prophetic consciousness. I heard an interview with Elie Wiesel, the um, Holocaust survivor who wrote the book Night along with dozens of other books. His memoirs are one of my favorite memoirs I've ever read. All Rivers Run to the Sea is the first one, and the second is And the Sea is Never Full. That's a line from Kohelet or Ecclesiastes. Fantastic, amazing human being. But he was asked once, why why did you never get involved in politics? Why, why didn't you, you know, you could have been the, you know, think he was even asked or said you could have been the prime minister of uh, France, I believe. He's a French citizen. I think he has a citizenship in a couple of countries. Um, he said, because I learned from my own tradition that um, you cannot both be a prophet and work for the king. So pretty powerful response. And in doing so, he's giving us a clue as to what prophetic consciousness is. Prophetic consciousness calls out the political and religious establishment. That's pretty much the prophet's full-time job, although that's not his or her job. They don't get paid for it. In fact, they risk their life for it. But it's sort of like saying um, a king doesn't have the kind of capacity to critique his own administration because too much power and money and influence and prestige is riding on it. And same with the religious establishment. There's no reason to do a kind of searching moral inventory because too much is riding on it. Really, a whole economy is riding on it, a whole way of life, a whole lifestyle and, and land and, and um, you know, generational wealth. This is particularly true in the, for the, uh, the Hebrew people. So why would they why would they be critical? So that's it, that landscape of power is is what the prophet is speaking into. Do you see how already that we're talking about something that's wildly different than someone that just predicts the future? You know, that's what people think of when they think of prophets. Oh, they predict the future. No, they say things about the future. They have a vision for what will come, especially if people don't change their ways, because <laughs> that's that's the dominant way that the prophet speaks through threats by saying, if you don't change, this is going to happen to you, and this is going to happen to you, and this is going to happen to you. And, he, and, and that does not make the religious establishment happy. This is why I think we have such a thing, supposed to have such a thing, as the separation of church and state in this country. Because prophetic consciousness teaches us that these two things, when they're in bed together, are quite dangerous. And this... I think I'm, I, in some ways I have a unique perspective on this because my dad, um, Ed Dobson, 
worked for Jerry Falwell in the 1980s and helped create what was called the moral majority. These are things you can Google if you don't know what they are. But for the first time um, in America, at least, on a large, in a large scale way, they tried to consolidate the Christian vote, so to speak, into a single political party to get their views and values elected into office. And what was available to them at the time was the religious, was uh, the Republican Party. And what, what came to be known as the religious right was pretty much associated with the Republican Party. And even to this day, you have people that if they're on the right, uh, religious right, they will always vote Republican. And that was not always the case. In fact, Jerry Falwell Sr., who's now gone, um, he died a few years ago, um, was originally registered as a Democrat. It was not so clear cut in the 1950s and 60s. And I don't know about the 70s, but anyway, this was a grand experiment. And what ended up happening is that, according to my dad, and so I have some, some bias here, is he said, basically, we got into bed with the king. I'm using my, my metaphors. And a bit of our, we lost a bit of our own soul. Even our, our our ability to critique the establishment, because we were the establishment, we were we were um, a major voting block, and and think about being invited to the White House. You know, I mean, I might talk like, oh, you know, I might say critical things about Trump, but if he was like, hey, will you come over for dinner? I'd be like, okay, you know, and and probably who wouldn't? Now, some of you are listening. But I would never do that. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you don't know until you're in that position. So. There was a lot of sort of back scratching and 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 my my dad used the phrase that we were blinded by might. That was his phrase that he loved. And he he later wrote a book um, with his friend about this. We were blinded by might, and it clouded our capacity to to speak about in his language the kingdom of God. So I know um, I know that. I'm about to to state something that's paradoxical. And here's the paradox. There's the kingdom of God, and there is everything else. And everything is the kingdom of God. (laughs) That's the paradox. And and the paradox, I think, should remain. The tension should remain. And it's a way of saying there's sacred space and non-sacred space. And inside sacred space let's say, the spiritual domain, let's say the spiritual tradition or traditions, to speak from that place, from a place of conviction and authenticity, it's difficult to do so if you're also playing some other game. And and you know what this is like. This is not even complicated because in your work environment, if you work in an environment where there are other people, if you don't just work for yourself, there's always a political dimension. You're always like, well, I don't know if I can really say that because after all, they're my boss. Well, that's the, that's the position that the religious right found themselves in over time. And my, my dad found his own way out of that. He's like, I'm not going to play that game anymore. And, um, and, and said some challenging things about it. And in many respects, we still are in the process of trying to learn that lesson because very much so, pastors, um, faith leaders, in sometimes on the right and the left, are still in bed with the political game. And I'm not saying you have to be non-political, because that's not possible. But um, to be overtly and directly involved in politics, 
it might cost you something on the level of the soul. That's what I'd like to at least offer as a challenge. And the prophets are the ones who most embodied that. That's why they didn't, that's why they didn't work for the king. And that's what gave them, in a sense, a kind of um, autonomy and separation to be able to speak with power into those various situations, which is another point I want to make about prophetic consciousness. Prophetic consciousness does not care who is in power. Okay, and let's just apply this in the 21st century in America. A real prophet, if there is such a thing left, which will, I'll give you some more, I'll add to the definition as we're, as we're moving along here, doesn't care who's in power. It's equal opportunity critique. So I might not like so-and-so and then offer a bunch of critiques. That's not prophetic consciousness. I just don't like them. I don't like their policy. I, you know, they're not my, they're not, they don't support what I support, okay? The prophet doesn't care. He, he looks at the political and the religious establishment and sort of says, always, always, I must offer a critique. In fact, the only people who are doing this, equal opportunity critics, are the comedians right now, the good comedians who they don't care. If it's Obama, it's Obama. If it's Trump, it's Trump. If it's Biden, it's Biden. If it's the left, it's the left. If it's the right, it's all, everything is fair game. And which gives you a clue. And I want to even go back even further when it comes to um, the prophetic consciousness. What, from what does it emerge? What archetypal ground is even behind the prophet? Because the prophet really is associated with the biblical tradition. So is there anything behind that? And the answer to that is yes. And it's something like the trickster, the trickster, the, the even perhaps even the word shaman, all that that's been cheapened in, in recent, recent years, the, the one who's able to move between worlds as a kind of healing figure, but a kind of trickster figure who's not really playing the game, who, who lives on the edge of the village, we could say, um, who doesn't hold a position of power in the village, but holds a position of kind of spiritual power on the side, <laughs> if that makes uh, at least some sense. And, and it's this consciousness that gives rise to the prophets. Like, like, in the, like Amos, the book of Amos is a book in the, in the Hebrew Bible. He's a shepherd. He literally wanders around hills looking after sheep. That's what he does. And he also tends fig trees, which I just love that, that detail. I think it's fig. Um, maybe it's sycamore. I don't remember. He's a tender of trees, so he's got a little grove, and he tends sheep. That's what he does. That's what he does for a living. And it's out of these kind of wilderness-oriented experiences that um, his consciousness is formed, and then he, he steps into the halls of power and says what's his to say, and risking his life. This is why Jesus says that the prophets get killed. They kill and stone and scapegoat the prophetic voices because, because they stand in opposition. But my point is, it doesn't matter who's there. So um, if you're going to, to, let's say part of you connects with the prophetic tradition, I would hesitate calling yourself a prophet, same with me, but resonates with the uh, prophetic tradition, say something to yourself like, okay, e equal opportunity criticism. Yep. Um, that's, that's, um, that's the, the current that's rising up from, from antiquity here. Okay. So that's, um, 
first point. Here's the second point that, I, that actually I don't really know what number I'm on, so I better stop giving <laughs> numbers. Here's another point. Abraham Heschel, um, who, has, who has been a pretty influential philosopher and rabbi teacher in my own life through his books and writings, um, has a whole book called The Prophets. And it's worth reading if you're really into the prophets and really into a kind of, um, it's almost uh, kind of uh, a philosophical understanding of prophetic consciousness. Abraham Heschel is your person. So that one, The Prophets, also maybe God in Search of Man, and spiritual audacity and moral grandeur. That's a that's a title of, of another book. So those those three will keep you going for the next. Mm, I don't know till you die. Um, anyway, he says something I think that's pretty profound about prophetic consciousness. He says the prophets do not say anything without tears. The prophets do not say anything without tears. It pains them to level their critique. And already. Maybe you know where I'm going. Really? Okay. How many of you are pained when you're leveling your critique to the right or the left? No, I'm not saying you have to, but don't think about it as prophetic consciousness or calling out the establishment in the prophetic tradition unless it's done with tears. It ought to break your heart, which tells you something about prophetic consciousness. It's one that walks through the world with a broken heart. It's not delighted in the critique or even in the downfall, like I told you so. You know, those of us um, or those of you who maybe weren't big fans of Trump, honestly, 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 what'd you feel when he got coronavirus? Yeah. Yep. Some of you, and I had a twinge of this if I'm um, uncomfortably honest. It's like, yeah, you, you know, you deserve this. You know, you, you, you didn't take this seriously. But I have to say, that's a pretty small-minded, jealous, um, vengeful, immature part of who I am. That's not, that's not the deep self. It's not the true self. That's the petty self getting involved here. That's not prophetic consciousness. It ought to break our hearts. It breaks my heart. The best part of me, it breaks my heart that the president is sick. I don't want this for him. I don't want this for his family. I don't want this for the, the, um, the presidential race that's happening. You know, I don't, I, I want, I want, it might be a bit idealistic, but I want the ideas and the value systems and the policies to enter the arena and battle it out and let the people decide. And, and an illness, you know, in the middle of all this clouds that, you know. So the best, the best part of me, the better part of me, um, doesn't wish this and doesn't wish this on, on anyone. And, 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 but more than that, to speak of the prophetic consciousness, it breaks their heart. If, if a king, let's put it in, in old world terms, if a king has gone after um, bowing down to other gods um, and other, other um, uh, foreign powers and foreign deities, these are things that make the prophets upset, um, it breaks the prophet's heart to have to say that, you know, and same with the pre the priesthood, the religious establishment. So I think that it gives me pause. Um, and actually I think 
if there's any goodness that's coming out of the president um, contracting coronavirus, is, is it brings it back down to the human level. It sobers us up. I think it should sober us up. All right. We're all human here. And it could have happened to Biden. And it may happen to Biden. So let's, um, let's, keep, let's keep our own humanity here front, front and center. So sobers, sobers us up, so to speak. So ask yourself, prophetic consciousness, what is needed to be said right now, but should be said with tears? See, um, the tears, you will listen to somebody whose heart is breaking while telling you the truth. You're not going to listen as easily to someone who's shouting and finger pointing and scapegoating and is self-righteous. This is my problem with social justice media posting, you know, it smacks of self-righteousness and very little broken heart, very little broken heart. And that's not true across the board because very hard to see, see into someone's, <laughs> into someone's heart through a screen. But I, th I think in terms of general tenor, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've even found yourself um, guilty of that kind of posturing. You know, so what needs to be said right now, but but can be said with a, with a broken heart. That's that's a question the prophets might ask of us. Here's another dimension that I think um, is maybe the most overlooked, and I probably should have started here if I if I if I could do it again, which I could, but just keep keep the way it is. Um, the prophets were someone who first and foremost had an experience of the mystery. That's my language. Old language is they experienced God. They experienced the divine. The divine broke through the veil of life and in some cases smashed in on their life and transformed who they were in the world from just a shepherd who tends trees to a prophet. Now, how did they make that transition? There's no prophet school. Actually, that's not 100% true. There may have been something like a school much later on with prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah almost like a guild. Um, but what precedes any of that is divine experience, Tran uh, moments of transcendence, where you transcend your own ego consciousness, where your ego consciousness is shattered, to use contemporary language, and you break through to, to a larger realm, to the realm of God, to the realm of nature, to the realm of the world, to the realm, realm of a larger consciousness, however you want to put it. Prophets were people who experienced something first, and out of that experience, that's the place they spoke from. So I want to say that again. Something of the divine, the mystery, crashed in on the shores of their life, transformed who they were, and from that transformed place, from that disturbed place, that's the place they spoke from. They spoke from experience. They're not down, you know, God didn't download a bunch of, you know, words for them to repeat. It's not that kind of thing. It's they were transformed. And Isaiah is one of the best examples because he has this kind of vision and, and there's this incredibly frightening beast in the clouds that has um, uh, six wings, I believe, six. And, and the wings are covered with eyes. And it's this terrifying vision. And this angel, this messenger comes up to Isaiah and burns his mouth with a coal. I mean, that's a vision. That is a non-ordinary state of consciousness, if you want to put it kind of in contemporary terms, and burns his lips as if to, to tattoo on his mouth, you are mine. Now that's a, transform, a transforming experience. And it's from that kind of brokenhearted, 
burned-lipped, leveled place that Isaiah says some of the most challenging things that have ever been uttered. Read Isaiah sometime about the divine, about life, about Israel, about the nations. Um, that really inspired the Messianic movement, particularly uh, the movement of Jesus. He quotes from Isaiah more than any other prophet. So profound influence on the larger consciousness of, of the Hebrew people, which maybe is worth saying at this point. So just to re reiterate some things I've said, what they say, they say with tears. What they say, they say from a place of experience. You know, they've experienced, they've tasted something. They're not faking it. Um, and they're calling out the political and religious establishment. That's their kind of their full-time job, non-job. Um, to speak truth to power is one way to say it. Um, that's kind of an overused phrase lately, but I think it communicates the point that 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 takes some real courage and some real guts. And maybe here's kind of an aside about prophetic consciousness and why I think we need it so badly right now, even if it's coming from our comedians. Um, the prophet is the one, the trickster, who can point out the ironies and inconsistencies of a culture and get away with it. And that's so important. If you cannot laugh at yourself, if you cannot laugh at yourself, you're in a pretty small place. And the prophets were the ones in, you know, so to speak, to turn that gaze inward. Or maybe to maybe a better way is to say, to function like a mirror and to point back and say, look at how you're behaving. See, Isaiah, the prophet, walked around naked in Jerusalem for three years saying, this is how you look before God. See, that's like theater. That's drama. That's, um, that's performance art. <laughs> you know, that's what Rob, uh, Rob Bell calls the sermon, essentially, performance art. And in part, he learned that straight from the prophets, you know? It's like, yeah, this is how you look before God. And it's like, that's there's the mirror. The mirror comes up to society and says, ooh, yeah, I guess um, maybe we ought to be ashamed of ourselves or maybe we ought not to walk around naked and pretend we're clothed, you know. Before the emperor's new clothes myth, you had um, Isaiah embodying such a thing. You know, walking around Jerusalem, this is how you look, this is how you look, this is how you look. So anyway, we're talking about some pretty radical and physically embodied ways of communicating um, truth to power, you could say. But they're functioning like the conscience of a culture. And what makes um, the Hebrew religion, later Judaism, and later Christianity at its best powerful is that it didn't drive these voices out of the system. They It could have, honestly. It's like, I don't know if you know that much about the Bible and how the Bible came to be. That'd be like, a, maybe, I don't know how interested people would be in that, but that'd be an interesting podcast in and of itself. But um, nevertheless, it's not a book. It's a collection of books. And it took a very, very long time for those books to be collected into something we call the Bible. And they were edited, and there are multiple authors, and sometimes there are multiple authors and editors inside of a single sentence. It's very, very complicated and complex. And at a certain point, 
a redactor or an editor could have come along and say, you know what, these are kind of harsh voices. It makes us look bad. Let's sideline them. And then we would have a much less conscious religion. We need the voice that says, look at you. This is Jesus saying, um, calling the Pharisees, who, by the way, he also says, listen to them. They know what they're talking about, but they just don't practice what, what they preach. This is why he calls them hypocrites. He's, he is embodying the prophetic consciousness in moments like that, saying, look, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of actors. That's all that word meant. And time to look in the mirror. And see, if religion, and politics for that matter, doesn't have that kind of self-correcting, mirror-like gaze, it becomes narcissistic, self-centered, power-hungry, um, unnecessarily hierarchical, uh, and eventually pushes out all the marginalized that, that, that do not agree with it. That's religion at its worst and its most dangerous. So th that's the reason why the prophets were killed, <laughs> you know. Uh, we, we, we'd rather just um, die in our illusions and in our, um, and in our power circles. So why am I saying that? Because we need the prophetic consciousness now more than ever. It's actually worth thinking, just considering the few things that I've mentioned so far. Tears, calling out the political and religious establishment, um, uh, you know, acting a, a bit like, like a trickster in the world. Um, those who have actually had an experience of the transcendent, you know, it's worth asking, who are, where are these people in the world? Um, do they exist? Are we listening to what they have to say? Are we taking their visions seriously? I know, like, visions and dreams, like, you know, you, know, you might think, oh, that's a little woo-woo, a little weird. You know, even Jung says, do not forget, God primarily speaks in dreams and visions. <laughs> we think, oh, yeah, yeah, but he used to, you know. But one... That's someone who, who the door has been open. And to perceive beyond the transitory illusions of, of our culture and our identities, yep, we need people like that, that have transcended that and can help us see. And how might they do that? Through critique and challenge and humor and trickster energy and walking around naked in the streets and crying in front of us and ripping their clothes, which is another great act of the prophets, in grief. I grieve. I tear my clothes at what's happening. Yeah, where are these people? And might we need them now more than ever? Now, maybe to conclude, I want to say something that I've I found interesting, sort of in, in preparation for this chat. I've been thinking about the prophets for a while. It's like, Sometimes I feel like, um, sometimes I have this weird experience that, and I don't mean this in a pretentious way, but that time and even the 21st century is something like an illusion. I mean, it's real, but it's an illusion. It's like the ancestors who have come before us are still very much alive. That's the feeling I have sometimes. And and it's like I can feel the presence of a kind of um, ancient wisdom, even here with us now, with my, you know, all, I'm speaking into a microphone, you know, and I, my computer is like doing whatever computers do, you know, recording this thing. So every once in a while I feel the presence, and, and I did the other morning, and I thought, I'm going to read the entire book of Amos just to see 
if I'm, see if I have ears to hear. That's, what, that's another line from the prophets. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. She who has eyes to see, let her see. So um, I did. And, and here's something that stood out to me. First of all, I noticed the tenor of the language was similar to other prophets. And here's what they were call, here's what Amos was calling out. First of all, he's calling out injustice. A big theme of the prophets. That all systems, all systems can become corrupt all power structures can become corrupt and engage in injustice. And here Amos is saying, I see it. I see you are unjust in the name of so-called justice. So they call out injustice. They call out violence. They call out mistreatment of the most quoted collection of people, the poor, the widow, the alien, and the orphan. You mistreat the poor, the widow, the alien, the orphan. In other words, the most marginalized people in society. If you want to judge from a prophetic point of view the um, well-being of a society, you look at those who are marginalized. That's the prophetic word. And it's scary. You're like, oh, damn it. None of us are doing that well, if you put it in those terms. The poor, the widow, the alien the orphan, the immigrant, in other words, is what that means, how, how you treat. And he's, and he's saying God, God notices, <laughs> and this should not be. So um, in some ways, prophets judge in real time. I know, you know, there's all this talk of, oh, we shouldn't be judgmental. And I think, well, it depends on what you mean by that. Uh, you certainly wouldn't say that to the prophets. Hey, don't be so judgmental, man. No, that's what they're doing. They're judging society. <laughs> and they're using mostly standards that everyone has already agreed upon. Like people already know they ought not to mistreat the poor, the widow, the alien, the orphan. They're just not doing it. So they're pointing out their own inconsistencies and um, hypocrisies. So that's on the one hand. Here, but here's the other thing that stood out to me. I wasn't surprised to read, you're not taking care of the poor, the widow, the alien, the orphan. But this is what was said more than that. And you have forsaken the law and the precepts. In other words, you're breaking rules in addition to mistreating the poor and to organizing what we would call in fancy words, systemic injustice. You've organized your society around this, and I'm calling it out. But you're also breaking the basic laws and precepts. So it's both of those things. It's like, how do you take care of the poor? And what about law? What about structure? What about order? And that's what was so surprising to me. It's like, it's like whether you're on the right and the left, the prophetic consciousness has something to say. Like, okay, what are the laws and rules and precepts that we've already agreed to as a society that we're violating? Or, or um, think, I don't want to, well, I don't really care. I was going to say, I don't want to get in too much hot water here. I don't really care. Um, you know, what about protests? You know, and what about when those protests turn violent? And what about when those protests vandalize things? And, and nobody wants to critique that on the left. But I think the prophets would. They say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. yes. We ought to be taking care of the, the marginalized, the, the, those with less fortunate circumstances. And it does matter how the power systems treat these people. And also, don't forget about the laws that we've agreed upon in the precepts. See, do you see? Like nobody gets out of the, the 
the critique of the prophetic consciousness. That's why we need it, you know? It's why we need these ancient voices. Um, I, so in other words, that the prophets, prophets stand in paradox, um, and they see into the human heart. They know that power blinds and corrupts. And, and I think um, it would serve us well to tune our ear to this ancient, energetic force that has um, continually challenged the Judeo-Christian tradition and continually challenged um, societies and cultures from Europe to South America to North America, whatever, wherever um, the Judeo-Christian tradition has spread and now around the world. Like, who are these people? And what do they have to say now? And we want to sideline them because we want to have power. We want our side to win. We want to be victorious. We want, we want the, the other side, so to speak, to be eliminated. But that just never happens. You will always have the poor among you, Jesus says. And he says to the rich young man, sell everything you have and give to the poor. So it's like both. Both. <laughs> so paradox abounds, I think, with the prophetic consciousness. And so I don't know exactly how I want, want to end here. Um, perhaps the, I don't know, the place to end is with a word that has been um, sort of like nudging me and challenging me. <clears throat> and the word is humility. Humility, as you probably know, is, comes from humus, from earth, from the decomposing earth. To be humble is to be low and to allow oneself to be decomposed by life itself, to submit to the process that is happening right now, um, at least in, in North America where I live, where the leaves are beginning to change and the trees are beginning to relax into into letting go of summer's full-bloodedness and, and the death and rot and worms and earthiness um, is, it's, it's the season for that. And, and that's the very ingredients of resurrection and of new life and of spring. And it's like the whole earth is saying, just relax into this. Relax into this. Relax into a kind of humble posture. And see, I don't think humility is <clears throat> not having a, an opinion. It's like, I've been saying some things about church and state and, and um, maybe challenging, hopefully, hopefully challenging some things here. But I'm hear me say, I'm not saying don't have an opinion. I have an opinion about all kinds of things. Um, and actually stating one's opinion and one's desires and, and is an act of humility. This is where I'm coming from, as best I can tell. And I might be wrong. That's, that's the kind of posture I'd like to hold. This is where I'm coming from, as best I can tell, and I might be wrong. And that's holding a post. So hold your post. That's the humble thing to do. And to submit to the ways in which nature and mystery and God and the prophets and other people and, and even people who vote differently than you might want to decompose you a little bit more. 
to work on you, to break you down. Um, and, and help you relax into, in, to a more conscious and honest way of being in the world. So, um, we, and I, maybe it's, it maybe goes without saying, but we don't see much of this in the public square, this kind of humility. We don't, but that doesn't mean we can't model that. I don't know if we can demand it because that's kind of silly. Like you must be humble. <laughs> that doesn't really work but we can embody it we can model it in our own way um in the interactions that we're having because i'll never meet the president i mean i'd be very surprised or you know joe biden or really any these people in power these aren't these are outside my circles but but i'm gonna keep seeing my neighbors i'm gonna keep seeing my relatives i'm gonna keep seeing um, shopkeepers and and people in restaurants and friends and and there's my opportunity to be to live and move in a more humble and gracious way in the world and 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 I think I think that's what the prophets um, are calling for. They're saying, repent, man. Tear your clothes. Fall down on your knees. Throw ashes on your head. You know, look internally at your own inconsistencies. Um, find, find and admit and own your own hypocrisies. You know, it's freeing. It's so ironic because it's so freeing to say, I'm full of contradictions like Walt Whitman. Do I contradict myself? Yes, I contain multitudes. Yeah, that's me. I'm full of contradictions. And to live from that place, I think is needed right now and important right now and just might be at least some of the needed ingredients in the shift of consciousness that's needed on a global scale because that's what's at stake. And I long, like for, for like the book of Joel says, for one day the spirit, the wind, the mystery to be poured out on all human beings. And maybe today is that day where the wind, the mystery, is being poured out on all people and sons and daughters will prophesy. And young men will, and young women will have visions, and old men and old women will dream dreams. Peace.